welcome back to Geography Lessons with Miss Sangha. So today we're going to be looking at an A-level topic and we're going to be looking at hot desert systems and landscapes. So the two sections that we'll cover in this podcast is an introduction to hot desert environments and their margins and systems and processes in these hot desert environments. So what exactly is a desert? So a desert is an arid environment that receives very low levels of rainfall. Hot deserts receive less than 250 millimetres of precipitation per year and semi-arid areas receive between 250 and 500 millimetres of precipitation per year. And all definitions of deserts include a link to the lack of water and the water balance which The water balance compares the mean annual precipitation received with the mean annual potential evapotranspiration and this is short, in short it stands for PET. PET is the amount of water that could be lost from the soil by plant transpiration or direct evaporation from the ground and the ratio of the mean annual precipitation to PET is what is known as the aridity index. So when the mean annual precipitation is greater than PET, it will have an aridity index that is greater than 1, whereas if PET is greater than the annual precipitation, the aridity index will be less than 1. So essentially, the higher the number, the less arid the area is. So now let's look at climate. So the temperatures do vary quite wildly between the hottest and coldest months and between daytime and nighttime temperatures. So the low humidity levels in hot deserts means that there's low cloud levels. These clear skies allow significant significant amounts of insulation to reach the surface. This results in high daytime temperatures Whereas at night time, these temperatures tend to drop quite rapidly. This is what's known as a high diurnal range. Also, as distance from the tropics increases, so does the annual temperature range in hot deserts. This is due to the increased seasonality of the climate. So desert margins have huge variations in temperatures. Those on the poleward side of arid areas are significantly colder than those on the equatorial side. There are huge variations in temperature patterns experienced in deserts across the globe. That is because of their geographical situation. So those that are close to the sea have cooler, less extreme temperature range than those in the continental interiors. In terms of the soils in deserts, when the soils do develop, they're often infertile and they have a very thin soil profile. Um, They also tend to be alkaline and quite saline. So soil development is quite slow because of the lack of moisture, the high temperature and high rates of evaporation and also the sparse vegetation and limited organic material. So desert soils are often characterised by a thick accumulation of basic mineral salts at or near the surface. The raw mineral soils of arid areas tend to have quite a coarse texture 
and they're often rocky and gravelly due to physical weathering. Chemical weathering is where there is water in the subsoil and capillary action leads to an accumulation of calcium and sodium salts near the surface. Also, a lack of moisture means that there's little downwards movement of minerals. This is what's known as leaching. So if we look at the vegetation that we find in these arid areas, um, the plants tend to have a wide range of physical and behavioural adaptations. And this is so that they can maximise the use of and limit the loss of moisture. They can store moisture in their stems or leaves. They can procure water with extensive and or deep root systems. And they can also respond rapidly to sporadic rainfall followed by rapid life cycles. So some of the features that they do have is the ability to conserve water. And they do this through the thick waxy cuticles and the closed stomas. Um, this makes the leaf surface waterproof. Um, they also have small spiky waxy or no leaves essentially to reduce the surface area and this limits transpiration. There are also ephemeral plants and these are essentially they lie dormant or lose leaves during drought so that they can tolerate it um, some of them even channel all their life energy into producing seeds that can lay dormant until a future rainfall event another feature is that some plants they have to be halophytes and this is where essentially they can tolerate high levels of salinity so what actually causes aridity in these hot desert environments there are four different factors that contribute to the arid nature. So these four factors include the general pattern of atmospheric circulation, distance from oceans or continentality, um, relief and cold ocean currents. So let's start off looking at global atmospheric circulation. So latitudes where hot deserts are located are generally dominated by high pressure throughout the year. So at the equator there is a net gain in energy. This is due to solar radiation um, called insulation that is received through the sun being directly overhead of the area with a high angle of incidence. So air that is in contact with the earth is heated and it begins to rise. As it rises, it cools and this causes water vapour within there to condense. This forms clouds and leads to precipitation. So this rising air is replaced by air rushing in from the north and the south. This creates an area of low pressure. This is what's known as the intertropical convergence zone. So this rising air begins to cool and track polewards. So at around 20 to 30 degrees north and south, this now cool, denser air descends. As it does, it warms and it expands. This means that a little cloud formation occurs and it gives the clear skies that are responsible for the heat and the aridity. These two circulation cells are known as Hadley cells. So feral cells have air descending at these mid-latitudes 
and the combination of the sinking air from both cells is what creates the high pressure at the surface. Now this can be quite a difficult concept to understand so if you can pause this podcast and watch a YouTube clip as it will really help to solidify this process. Hopefully you had a chance to watch a quick video clip to um, understand how global atmospheric circulation works. I did have to watch one myself to understand this process. Um, so it's definitely something that is better understood through visuals. But moving on to distance from the sea. So continentality influences both the rainfall and temperature that's received by maritime areas and continental interiors. So essentially, land warms and cools quicker than water does. So as a result, coastal locations have a more stable climate and they have little variation in temperature. They also have higher levels of rainfall as um, there are high levels of evaporation occurring and the water vapour and latent heat are taken into the atmosphere. Therefore, distance from the sea results in higher extremes with little moisture for cloud formation and this is the case for parts of the Sahara in the centre of North Africa. Now let's look at how relief impacts these areas. So around mid-latitude areas, there are dry regions on the side of mountain ranges. These experience the rain shadow effect. Um, so this happens in areas like the Arabia in the west of the Himalayas. So essentially, if warm air is brought inland by prevailing winds, when it meets a range of mountains, it's forced to rise. And this leads to cooling, which then leads to condensation and cloud formation and then relief rainfall occurs on the windward side of the mountain range and then once it's over the summit the air actually descends on the leeward side of the range so this sinking air warms and it leads to a drop in relative humidity and it leads to clear skies with little to no rainfall and that is what's known as the rain shadow effect and then finally, let's look at the cold ocean currents. So essentially, it's the global oceanic circulation that um, leads to these areas being quite arid. So any wind that's moving over these cold waters is cooled and this causes the relative humidity to increase. And eventually, moisture is condensed to create fog and mist offshore. Um, but because the land heats up quicker than the sea, this can generate gentle onshore breezes which take the fog and the mist inland. But due to the intense heating from the direct overhead sun, this um, essentially burns away the fog and the mist. Because the air was cool, it's not able to hold much of the moisture. So cloud formation is pretty unlikely. Some vegetation have adapted to this temporary moisture and they condense on it as dew. Um, and this happens in northern Chile. And just a little side note in case you're wondering, there are quite a few people who live in these dryland areas. So the total population currently is around 2.1 billion. So around one in three people in the world actually live in dryland areas 
and as the population density increases, aridity decreases and deserts actually come under the topic of dryland landscapes, so they are a type of dryland. Now that we've looked at some of the factors that cause aridity, let's look at some dryland geology. So dunes actually only cover 20 to 25% of drylands. So the main types of dryland geomorphology include mountain basin regions and these have a high relative relief that's controlled by geology and the bedrock is actually exposed. Um, I will link a story map that I've made that can help you to visualise these geo geological features. We also have Piedmonts and these are transitional areas between the highlands and the lower areas and they're characterised by depositional and erosional landforms. We also have stony deserts and these generally have a low relative relief and they comprise stony plains and uh, structural plateaus. Essentially stony deserts um, are largely vegetation free and they're often characterised by the development of stone pavement. Um, approximately 40% of the drylands in China are stony deserts or also known as the Gobi deserts. We also have the ephemeral rivers, floodplains and dry lake basins. So these um, areas are normally dry but during the occasional often high intensity but it has a short duration rainfall events um, they can often get large flows of water and sediment. And finally the one that we're most familiar with is sandy deserts. So these comprise um, expansive areas that um, are without dune forms um, and the sand can be blown from by the wind to form dunes and some dryland areas have extensive dune fields also known as sand seas. So to understand how certain landforms actually are made we have to look at some key geological concepts. So um, there is a generalised feedback system between flow, geomorphic flow and sediment transport. So to explain this we can look an, at an example of a sand dune. So essentially the wind which is the flow will transport sand which is the sediment to create a dune and this is the form. So in the early stages of landform development there will be a positive feedback loop so that through the continued action of the wind, more sediment can be transported to create a larger dune. However, the form of the dune can also affect the wind flow, so that at some point, no more sediment will be deposited at the top of the dune, and it will reach equilibrium. This whole system can also be affected by environmental factors, such as climate, geology, tectonic activity, or human influence. A change in one of these factors or more can lead to a gradual or sudden change in the amount of sediment available for transport or the efficiency of the flow. In terms of weathering, so mechanical weathering 
which is the disintegration of rock, which is caused by physical processes, is important in dryland landscapes. Um, there are two types of weathering that dominate. We have insulation weathering, and this is essentially where rock breaks down as a result of daily expansion and contraction of rocks in a response to the stress that the temperature gradient causes. Originally, it was thought that insulation weathering um, occurred solely in response to the rock thermal expansion, but it's now thought that it's likely that small amounts of moisture, either from fog or dew, contribute to this process. And then we also have salt weathering. So when salt accumulates, rather than it being washed away by the rainwater and it exerting stress on the rocks through crystallisation, hydration or thermal expansion, salt weathering can cause rapid disintegration of rocks in situ and also cause damage to buildings and infrastructure in these dryland regions. Um, other types of weathering that um, can occur in the drylands include frost weathering and biological weathering. Essentially, weathering causes the breakdown of rocks into small particles and these can then be transported by wind and water. So let's look at the role of water in drylands. So rainfall in drylands is often very seasonal. Um, it occurs with a limited number of low frequency, high magnitude or high intensity events. The sparse vegetation cover in drylands leaves extensive areas of, uh, of unconsolidated fine sediments unprotected at the desert surface and this lack of protection can mean that when these rainfall events do occur, they result in rapid erosion leading to high sediment loads in some dryland rivers. A particular feature of some deserts are the dryland lakes, which are thought to cover around 1% of the desert landscapes. These are known as the ephemeral lakes, the pans, the playas and the salt lakes. Most lake surfaces in deserts are vegetation free due to an accumulation of salt at the surface. But when they're filled with the seasonal rains, these features can be important temporary water sources for humans and animals. They can also have economic importance as some desert lakes are mined for salt. So now that we've looked at the role of water, let's look at the role of wind. So the lack of vegetation means that wind can be a more effective geomorphological agent in drylands than in some more humid landscapes so when deposited the sand creates landforms such as sand sheets dunes and dune fields the main um, dune types in areas with no or sparse vegetation are controlled by how variable the wind regime is and how much sand is available for dune building so ripples are the smallest aeolian bed form and they form on upwind dune slopes and on sand sheets. Um, in, in addition to creating landforms of deposition, the wind can also erode the landscape. A ventifact is a stone or a boulder that's been shaped by the wind. So wind erosion can also cause deflation and this is the removal of fine material from a surface 
The process of deflation contributes to the occurrence of dust storms and is also important in the formation of stone pavements. So something important to remember is that there are links between weathering, wind and water systems in drylands. In particular, weathering produces the material, fluvial systems transport and deposit it, um, the wind piles it up or removes it to create landforms, so it is kind of like a system. So let's look at the transfers of energy and the movement of material. So sediment budgets are a key driver of landform development. For example, sand dunes and dune fields will only accumulate in areas where the amount of sand that's being blown to a location by the wind is greater than the amount of sediment that's being blown away from the location. So some specific types of sand dunes will form where the sediment supply is low and others will only form where the sediment supply is high, for example star dunes. The accumulated sediment is stored within the dune. The magnitude and frequency of sediment transporting events is important in shaping dryland landscapes. There are substantial river systems in deserts that have no permanent water, but occasional high magnitude flood events may occur from time to time. So something that I would like you to do after you've listened to this podcast is to take a specific case study um, and I'm going to recommend the Sahara Desert in North Africa um, and that occupies about a third of the African continent. Um, It has a wide diversity of dryland landscapes and it's also the world's largest dust source. So I want you to take this case study and create a fact file um, and include things like why it's an arid landscape, um, what kind of landforms are there. I want you to get some maps, um, look at ArcGIS to see if you can look at some of these landforms and just create a nice fact file about this location to help you understand the concept of dryland landscapes and hot deserts. I hope you enjoyed learning about hot desert systems and arid landscapes.